to Things You Ought to Know podcast. Whether you've listened to the previous podcast or this is your first one, thanks for tuning in. On this podcast, we are focused on bridging the gap between evidence and practice in the field of occupational therapy. This is my doctoral capstone project. This is Bentley Broadnax speaking. And with such a huge push to evidence-based practice, I think that it is so important that we obtain this evidence in a practical and um, just convenient way. And what better way than podcast? So just kind of a brief synopsis. You can find out more about why I did this in previous podcasts, but today I really want to focus on uh, OT's role in mental health, specifically pediatrics, uh, because our interviewee that's lending his knowledge, that's where his area of practice is in. So I'm excited to talk about this and I'll kind of go into why I chose this. Uh, First, I want to give you a little bit of brief history about OT's role in mental health. So we began providing care in mental health in 1963 when the deinstitutionalization of individuals with mental illness, uh, and that was through the Community Mental Health Act, when occupational therapists and OT assistants began working in community mental health. So that's by Sean Holtz in 2010 was my resource for that, but I think that it's huge. You know, we've been in mental health for a while, and there's still a lot to learn about it. So we're going to dive in and find out the evidence that's out there now. So I feel like this is really relevant for all OTs and I really want to hit on that because one huge reason I wanted to talk about mental health right now is because of everything that's going on around us. It's chaotic. I think it probably has taken a a toll on all of our mental health no matter what our needs are. So it's important to make note of these things and to kind of see that you might be noticing some residual effects in our clients no matter what setting we're in. So hopefully everybody, no matter your setting, can get something out of this. I really try to make it applicable for all of us. Uh, COVID-19 has taken a huge impact in many different ways in pediatrics and adults. So we'll, we'll make it relevant for all of us. Uh, I also want to note that mental illness is the leading cause of disability in the world, according to Sean Holtz in 2010. And they kind of go hand in hand. Mental illness is its own disability within itself, but if you have a mental illness, you may be more likely to obtain a physical disability as well because of these risky behaviors that you're more apt to when you have a mental illness. So there's evidence that occupational therapy interventions improve outcomes for those living in the community with serious mental illness. And that's according to AOTA in 2012. So go OT on that one. Uh, Mental illness is related to substance abuse and trauma as well. So all three of those are kind of interrelated. And I've thought about that before, but it was so, so evident in the research. And so it's kind of sad. It's kind of a classic case of which came first, the chicken or the egg. Um... Because all of these things are just so intertwined. So multiple national population surveys have found that about half of those who experience a mental illness during their lives will also experience a substance use disorder and vice versa. So again, the vice versa is just kind of reiterating kind of which came first. It is dependent on the individual and very hard to tell at times. So addressing mental health... Um, such as the helping cope, the healthy coping strategies in all of these settings, like I mentioned before, specifically for adolescents, can decrease all of these risks. So you're most at risk during your adolescent years. 
So we really, you know, no matter your setting, you can still influence mental health. And we are such a psychosocial field. And so I really kind of want to take a step back and even if you are visitors, you know, kind of just still keep this in mind. Go back to that psychosocial training and think about all of these components that are tying in, especially at that vulnerable adolescent age. So again, I do want to review our levels of research before we go into it so that it's fresh on our mind as we talk about the evidence. Um, and we are really keeping in mind what I mean when I say level one, level two, level three, um, and so on and so forth. The levels of research that I'm discussing are from Sackett, Rosenberg, Muir Gray, Haynes, and Richardson from 1996. Um, I used a systematic review from AOTA that I referenced throughout. So as I did in the previous podcast, um, I really want to give credit where credit is due to AOTA. They have wonderful resources that are easy to use. They do the research for you and then you dive in and kind of find out more about everything. Um, I also went a little further than that, but most of my research is through AOTA. So I just really want to credit them and make sure you know beforehand that they have such wonderful resources in evidence-based practice. So standards of evidence are developed in evidence-based medicine that standardize and rank the value of scientific evidence for biomedical practices using the following grading system. So level one is the highest and best. Again, these are your systematic reviews, your meta-analyses, and your randomized controlled trials. Uh, level two are two groups non-randomized studies like cohorts or case control type studies. Also good, but a step down from the level one. Um, level three is one group non-randomized. So those are usually before and after or pre-test, post-test type studies. Level four is descriptive studies that include analysis of outcomes. So a single subject design or a case series typically. And then level five, I didn't mention beforehand, and I can't believe I didn't because we are using level five throughout and you'll see why. This is case reports and expert opinions. So narrative, literature reviews, and consensus statements kind of are good examples of level five uh, evidence levels. But our interviewee is providing level five evidence throughout because we're constantly using their expert opinions. Uh, so I definitely wanted to make note of that. And I definitely should have in the last one, but I was more focused on the evidence. So we're thankful for an interviewee to constantly kind of direct us back to practice and bridge the gap and provide this level five evidence throughout. Now that we've had our brief review of the levels of evidence, we'll go into our interview with Mr. Noah Hansen. So I'd like to introduce Mr. Noah Hansen, and we're thankful he's joining us here on the show today. He has a bachelor's degree in Spanish and in health science, and he's completed his master's in OT in 2011. He was a pediatric OT for one year before he started serving as the, uh, make sure I'm pronouncing this right, milieu, milieu. milieu manager at Children Diagnostic Unit at the Psychiatric Research Institute, and that was from 2012 to 2015. He was also an adjunct professor in the OT department teaching pediatric and mental health courses. He went back to being a pediatric OT at Pediatrics Plus Developmental Preschool from 2015 to 2017 before becoming director of their Sherwood location. He's currently the vice president of preschool operations at Pediatrics Plus and increasing satisfaction and effectiveness in preschool teachers through more compassionate care. 
He also is a husband and a father of four daughters, and he's also a foster parent. Uh, he also wanted me to know he's bicycle obsessed, so he works part-time as a bicycle mechanic and has done so for 12 years. Thank you so much for joining us today. So, from my research looking into mental health, it appeared that it was really tied to trauma, substance abuse, and behavioral disorders. They were often all categorized together. So, from your experience, can you kind of confirm that all of these are interrelated, specifically with childhood trauma? Yeah, I think that the thing with trauma is that, you know, when we, when we think about trauma, we, we typically, unfortunately, think about it unidirectionally mm-hmm. in that there's some sort of direct line between um, trauma to mental illness, which is certainly understandable and, and is true. Um, however, it's a little bit more nuanced and complex than that. Sometimes you have to think about kind of a chicken-egg scenario, whether the the trauma, you know, leads to mental illness or mental illness leads to trauma. And the, the answer is that that, that that interchange occurs all the time. And the other factor that plays into that a great deal is the context of someone's environment. So uh, SES and uh, other factors like living conditions or work-related stress or financial burden all play into whether or not um, you know trauma occurs and whether that then leads to mental illness or vice versa whether an underlying mental illness uh, presents itself which can lead to additional trauma but you know in short yes childhood trauma is absolutely connected to those children that need and um, seek mental health services right I like how you put the which came first because as I was looking at this I kind of thought the same thing I was like this is a kind of scenario of which came first the chicken or the egg it's, it is very intertwined it absolutely so what led you to work with this population with NOT? I think that one of the things that I've always been interested in is how someone's situation or their the context of their existence plays into their ability to be successful or, you know, quote unquote, successful uh, within the world. And particularly with children, how one child, given certain context and situation, is successful while another child may not be. Um, I think one of the things that I, I most care about is that those that are consistently underserved or undervalued in our society or given a voice and I think that uh, while in many ways in recent years mental health has has enjoyed a resurgence in acknowledgement and maybe the beginning of a change in how the lens through which we see mental health um, I just I have a a passion for helping or trying to understand and um, maybe better serve that type of population or that group of people those that and, and I think that in reality that you know that group of people is all of us uh, you know mental health is really a spectrum um, and more so even than a spectrum I think it also is sometimes like I said earlier, given context, we have more of that struggle manifest than other people. So, uh, whenever we 
perhaps are dealing well with whatever challenge we have or potentially have, by contrast, someone else not given the same resources or available aid is not. And so, I, you know, I, I've, I've always wanted to be able to, to shine a light on that and, and help in whatever way I can. Right. Right. That's a good way to put that. Kind of reverse that stigma. Not necessarily reverse it, but help reduce that stigma that is associated with mental health. Um, so what advice do you have for OTs that are in other settings to recognize and address symptoms of mental illness, trauma, or substance abuse? I think the, the number one thing that I would always share with anyone is to never fail to treat people like human beings. Right. I think that in oftentimes those individuals that are acutely struggling with mental health issues it is easy for them to be marginalized mm -hmm. um, because it can be uncomfortable to work with them or interact with them uh, because of the particular struggles they're going through. Um, whenever, you know, when we're working with OT, you know, what can happen is we're focused on a particular skill set or deficit and trying to address that but mental health is always going to play a role in that, whether it has to do with a person's state of mind, their motivation, their ability to follow directions, understand what we're saying, grasp what we want them to do, understand the connection that we're trying to make from you know bridging that gap right. of what we're asking them to do and how that's going to affect their life moving forward. And so I think that hopefully most OTs don't have a, a difficult time with this because our whole idea is holistically treating a person. And when we're trained in such a psychosocial manner. Absolutely. You know, we should always be taking that into account whether we're, whether we're treating it directly or it's kind of an underlying thing. Absolutely. There. I think that, I mean, and that, honestly, I think occupational therapy, while maybe not technically trained um, to interact and treat mental illness or, or you know, mental conditions, mm -hmm. I think we are uniquely positioned in the ethos of occupational therapy to approach it because everything that we do um, and how we're trained is very appropriate from a compassionate mental health perspective. Uh, that that's the way that you would want to approach someone is holistically and as that whole person approach um, really allows them to be successful from a mental health standpoint. Definitely. And that's why I say this topic is relevant for everybody. Sure. I hope that people won't be kind of deterred from seeing that the topic of this is mental health and be like, oh, that's not my field of practice. Well, it's kind of everybody's, you know. We should definitely be taking that into account. And also, right now with COVID-19, you know, everybody's kind of, everybody's mental health is affected just about, you know, whether you're diagnosed with a mental illness or not, it's something that we should need to be thinking about and needs to be in the back of our mind as we're seeing whatever clients we, we have. Absolutely. Uh, so, if you are to kind of generalize this, this is always kind of difficult for people to do, I think. What are your most recommended assessments, either formal or informal, for the children that are demonstrating symptoms of mental and behavioral disorders? This, this may not be a particularly popular answer, but okay. I, I would say that assessment, formal assessments are, are pretty useless um, mm -hmm. with, uh, this, with, with mental health, with real mental health. Right. I think that um, there are some, some tools that can be used to access or to guide 
your practice or your thought in order to best approach a child. Um, you know, think there's a ABS2 interest checklist or adolescent interest checklist. Like there's some of those real common ones that we use that are real kind of bare bones assessments that you can kind of guide how you approach the child. Unfortunately, it, it's a it's a it's a difficult situation because we are not um, licensed nor encouraged mm-hmm. to really do deep dive formal assessments of of behavioral disorders or anything that might be you know we don't diagnose right. anything that would be dealing with DSM five stuff that that kind of thing is not really our scope of practice. Mm-hmm. However, what what is most helpful for a child or a family when they are dealing with a, uh, a situation where a child may be behaviorally mm-hmm. uh, having difficulty or uh, may demonstrate a lot of signs and symptoms of, of depression or um, anxiety, what, how you would want to approach that child is identify common interests, uh, when I say common interests, identify things that you can work with the child, utilizing that as a tool. So if they're, they are, um, you know, I'll I'll just think of some things that I've done in the past, like, you know, if they're into Pokemon, well, you, you better, you know, figure out some Pokemon go. That's right. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta be able to get in there because that's how you're, you know, to make progress with mental health, you have to have connection and real yes. connection. Um, and, and so rapport building, to me, is the most important aspect of occupational therapy as you dive into mental health. You know, I've always, when I, when I talk to therapists or, or teachers or, or whoever, I always request that we be... Um, this, this is a dated reference, but I always want us to be MacGyver, not Rambo. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, you know, Rambo, his approach was always to have, you know, rocket launchers and machine guns and <laughs> bandoleras of ammunition. And sometimes what happens is we get caught up in the tools we use right. and we forget what the actual essence of what we do. Mm-hmm. Therapeutic use of self is... It's huge. It's vitally important yes. in anywhere. So... You know, on the flip side, MacGyver, you know, would, you know, the jokes are always, he would make bombs out of paper clips and things like that. (laughs) And that's really how we should approach that is that it's you that makes a difference, not some tool or some assessment. And again, I'm not discounting assessments in general because we have to have standardized ways that we sort of measure where a person Mm -hmm. is at. But for, because we can't necessarily directly treat mental health sometimes directly assessing it is not always that important uh you know and when i think about rapport building uh myself and a a colleague a number of years ago kind of developed a a way to break down how to build rapport and you know you have to have proximity meaning Mm -hmm. actual physical proximity and this is with kids but would apply with adults as well meaning that it's very difficult to build rapport with someone across the room. You can't, you know, it's, it's especially kids, you know, kids, you need to be with them. Um, another issue that, that always comes up is you, you have to be engaged. Yes. And so if you, you can't build rapport if 
I'm playing on my phone and a child's reading a book. Uh, I know that that happens sometimes, but you know, again, like, or you know, maybe the same results. Not going to get the same results, and maybe applying it to the clinical setting, you can't be typing a note Mm -hmm. while a child's coloring a picture because that's you're you're not building rapport there. And then the the final thing is really uh, enthusiasm, and. I, I, I bristle at the idea sometimes of, of the, the concept of faking it because you never have to fake it, right? You might be enthusiastic about something different, right? So if we're talking about Pokemon, it may not be your favorite thing in the world, but what you can be enthusiastic about is building a relationship with that child. The, the, the silly example I always use is that, um, you know, I have four daughters and uh, while we worked, my wife and I were very, uh, we, we worked very hard to not pigeonhole them and what they liked. Right. Uh, they ended up, all four of them, are quite interested in, in princesses. <laughs> and um, I don't particularly like Disney princesses as a, as a general rule of thumb. <laughs> I, it's not something that I would seek out on my own. Um, but I can promise you, I, I, I know more about Disney princesses than, than most people. You're invested in it because they are invested in it. Absolutely. Is it, I, I can absolutely be enthusiastic about spending quality, relationship-building time with my daughters, no matter what the topic is, mm-hmm. regardless of how interested I am or enthusiastic I am in a vacuum about that particular topic. And I think that, so when I think about assessment, with mental health and particularly with children what I think about is how do I engage with this person in order to understand them so that I can that I have a a better not only knowledge about who they are but I also have a better relationship that I can utilize when I'm engaging with them that they will trust me and so later on if there's a more um, sensitive topic it's easier for them to follow me and to, to go with a request uh, mm-hmm. whereas um, you know if, if you're not talking princesses when they are they're right. going to be disconnected and you, you need to absolutely and, and I think that I you know you can apply that again to adults as well I did yeah. a, um, a clinical rotation at a hand clinic in southern Missouri when I was in school and you know a hand clinic is very prescribed Yes. But yes. these individuals are also sometimes fearful, mm-hmm. uh, frustrated, uh, discouraged based on what the whatever's going on. And I, I remember, uh, you know, my method there is is I'm not a particularly social person in general, and so it was challenging because you're literally sitting across from individual oh, so people yeah. for yeah. thirty minutes, forty five minutes, an hour Definitely. sometimes. You know, just uh, you know working on. Uh, you know, releasing yeah, scar tissue, whatever the case may be. And so to engage with them and to access that aspect of mental health, I memorized lots of stuff about NASCAR and uh, (laughs) St. Louis Cardinals and, you know, all kinds of stuff that were common interests of the population that that we were serving. And and I think that it it made me a much more effective Mm -hmm. therapist in that setting. And so that's another way kind of apply that that aspect of mental health in a very prescribed setting. You yes. know, you wouldn't, in, in a hand clinic, you know, mental health is not top of the mind, but it, I think it's really critical to see success in those patients. It helps ease that anxiety they're experiencing Absolutely. with that. And mm-hmm. anxiety is tied to mental health. It's all interrelated and 
And I like that you use that reference a lot. And something else too, to me, it's much harder to be, a, you might disagree, let me know. But it's harder to be objective with mental health because it's so different. You know, they may, two people may have the same diagnoses, but they, they present differently. Yeah, I would say that, that that's, that's absolutely true. Um, and I think that what that speaks to is, in my opinion, especially in children, I, this, this changes a little bit as people mature and sort of stabilize. Mm -hmm. But within children, mental health diagnoses are fairly uh, unimportant in terms of treatment. Uh, what you really want to look at is, is symptoms, and uh, you know the the child themselves, and, and how it relates to whatever challenge they're experiencing. Mm -hmm. uh, because if you've ever worked with children that are experiencing significant problems, they'll have fourteen diagnoses by the time you know from the time they're six to the time that they're eighteen. Right. Because they're kind of you know it's just they're a very they're still fluid. Developing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean. I talk about this sometimes when you think about uh, medication that's prescribed to children. A child that, you know, if, if, I'm re if I receive an atypical antipsychotic med when I'm 33, mm -hmm. two years later when I'm 35, I'm essentially the same person right. uh, physiologically. But if you think about a six-year-old and an eight-year-old, they it's are physiologically difference. very different. And so, again, diagnoses, you want to treat the person, not the diagnosis. And, exactly. and that's, that is applied across the board, yes. but I think it's particularly important when it's you're dealing fragile with, in this with area. mental health, absolutely. Yes. So, we mentioned this earlier about COVID-19, but do you foresee a rise in symptoms of behavioral and mental disorders due to all of these transitions secondary to COVID? In children and in adults across the board? Without question. Yeah. I think that it's a frightening time uh, when thinking about mental health for a number of reasons. Mm -hmm. I think that the aspect of isolation and the necessary precautions we are taking in general for adults, I think, is concerning. Uh, I think that it's something we need to talk more about and figure out appropriate and safe ways to mm -hmm. counteract that. For children, it's even more multifaceted than that because there is the same challenges that they are experiencing from an isolation standpoint. Mm -hmm. And why that's so critical right now is that children are in a, uh, especially young children, are in a critical window of time. Much of the development of a child occurs from social interaction. So we think oftentimes erroneously that we teach kids things, but many things that children learn, they learn through experience. Right. And social interaction is vital for that. Mm. So that, that's concerning, just how that happens. I think the other thing, you know, the necessary social distancing that's taking place and the emphasis on decreasing physical contact is also concerning to me. Obviously, we always want to you know, think about consent-based contact, but in general, children are need tactile input. They need affectionate physical contact. Yeah, and if it's something that we're sort of discouraging right now, understandably, um, that can be, you know, it's something that, that is, it, we have to think about. 
and maybe the even more serious or darker side of, of, of this too is that there's no question that with, with more time at home alone or in isolated constrained situations with high stress, um, abuse is, is going to increase, right. which is, is Sad going reality. to yeah, increase yeah. mental health conditions and trauma like we talked about earlier. So that's something that is a, is a big concern, um, particularly with, with the unknown about school and what that's going to look like. Um, and that's not to say that those are not always problems. They are always problems. But there is, an, there is increased strain and stress in family units right now, uh, whether that be just from the social aspect, financially there's a lot of strain, there's a lot of fear and um, anxiety about the unknown, right. and all of that is a volatile mix uh, for a young child. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, the, the, the short answer is absolutely. I think that not only are we going to have short-term uh, mm -hmm. serious ramifications from a mental health perspective, I think if we aren't careful and thoughtful about what the other side of this looks like, mm -hmm. we could have long-term changes that will adversely affect children's social development and social knowledge. So I think there are things we have to, you know, think about and, and, and obviously there is the real and ever-present danger of the virus uh, and we have to balance how do we, how do we navigate that. Definitely, definitely. And I like how you put that. It's definitely um, very trying times for everyone and we want to make sure that we don't prolong the effects. So we want to try to do as much as we can, do our part and while balancing it all. So the first thing that I want to go into, so what I'll do is I'll kind of start diving into the research yeah. and you feel free to give me your input at any point. Um, we're going to use your expertise throughout so we can kind of relate this to actual practice. So something I found, the reason I wanted to talk to you so much about trauma is I found a lot of information on it. Um, the Kaiser Permanent with Centers for Disease Control in the 1990s, they found that a lot of research to support that there is a direct relationship between adverse childhood experiences and negative health outcomes later. So even as adults, so they go through this as a child and as adults, they're more likely to experience things like heart disease, stroke, diabetes, asthma, depression, alcohol abuse, um, the list goes on and, and more immediate things are illicit drug use, poor academic achievement and unemployment. And I found that at the Children's Hospital in Philadelphia's website. So these are, uh, you know, kind of a harsh reality that knowing, like you said, this is such a critical time in their life that as they're young, you know, that can make long-term effects down the road. So in your experience with children that have experienced trauma, did you note any direct physical symptoms at that time? Or do you think it's more long-term? Like, what are some physical signs that we can watch for? Yeah, I think physical signs are, are less common. I mean, obviously, if there's signs of abuse or things like that. Right. But in terms of physical well-being, I think you see children are more withdrawn. Um, they may have inappropriate or over-the-top reactions to uh, simple and common interactions. Mm -hmm. um, incapricious and enuresis is something that is 
especially if it's unexpected and out of the blue is a, is a really common symptom uh, of abuse. Although, you know, you don't want to overstate that, but it's a, a big red flag if that's seen. Um, I think another area that, that I would just say any dramatic behavioral change mm-hmm. is usually a, a not a good sign. Um, uh, but again, that is, you've got to weigh that against the reality that sometimes mental health is not directly genetic. Mm-hmm. You know, most mental health disorders are a combination of environmental influence and genetic factors. So sometimes things can occur that trigger something that isn't necessarily, you know, that we can't draw, you know, draw the string to to. and and, and be able to see that. So, um, but yeah, so. So no no real physical signs. Not usually, I mean, the health of a child, I I would imagine may suffer to some degree, uh, but sometimes that's all tied up Mm -hmm. in what is causing the trauma more than the trauma itself as a factor. Right. I was just curious if you saw that, because what I found was, you know, more um, concerned with later in life those mm-hmm. physical issues come about so I was wondering and, if and started I think, young if I think a lot any. of that too can be you know looked at from success of that that person you know people that experience trauma have a much more challenging time uh, becoming just you know again I'm, I'm using successful as a as a general term yeah um, you know, maybe they have more life stressors because of the trauma, which then result in additional physical mm-hmm. wellness issues. It's a tangled web. Mm-hmm. Is um, just that increased stress that they experience all the time too. Can definitely we know that that's not good for our health. So that's another thing. Um, so I wanted to kind of hit on. I'm going to talk a little bit, kind of relate back to what you just said, Sam. But trauma and stressor-related disorders, because a lot of these we commonly know about and I'm not going to get too much into them but there were some that as I was looking over this I was like okay I need to know more about what to watch for and again like we don't I'm not saying you know we need to know this for diagnosis purposes but just things to watch for kind of keen observation so of course PTSD is one I won't go into that most most know about that Um, acute stress disorder so the symptoms are similar to PTSD symptoms but it occurs within the first month of exposure to the trauma so that's something to watch for if it comes on kind of suddenly and uh, just that timeline's a little different compared to PTSD. So adjustment disorders, those are the unhealthy reactions to stress or changes that are emotional or behavioral. Kind of talking about what you just said, those huge emotional responses. Um, reactive attachment disorder, so that's limited emotional responses, limited remorse, um, a lack of a response altogether, whether it be positive or negative triggers. So a child just does not seem to care about anything almost. And, you know, that's not necessarily, I don't mean that in a personality. You know, some people's personality is just a little more mellow in that way. But this is, you know. And I would say with, with RAD too, uh-huh. uh, there, I would say that the, the mental health community is mixed about RAD. Right. So there's a little bit of, I wouldn't say controversy, but the rate and when it's diagnosed, sometimes there is some disagreement about that. Okay. There has been some. Uh, it's it's just a it's a complex. Again, any diagnosis in a child is challenging, um, but RAD sometimes and, and people that are fervently adherent to the idea of RAD 
sometimes uh, pursue that to the exclusion of all else, which uh, I think I, I've seen be uh, problematic. Right. That's good to know. I didn't run across that. So thank you for adding that. Um, disinhibited social engagement disorder. So unusually open interactions with strangers and over eager to form attachments. And that kind of, I, I thought back to a volunteer experience I did years and years ago where I was, I was in high school actually. And I was thinking about this child that just wanted to go home. You know, we were instantly best friends. And back then I was flattering to me. You know, oh, well, we really hit it off. You know, that's great that he thinks that highly of me. But now I, I see, you know, those signs. And so kind of sad to look back on. But. Well, one of the really challenge, you know, one of the, the sad things about that particular challenge is that it leads to more trauma mm-hmm. oftentimes. Yes. Um, and so that's, that's a, unfortunately, and a lot of childhood mental health issues the inappropriate reaction to the trauma can sometimes uh, create opportunities for more trauma, which yes. is, is, is kind of overly trusting of individuals. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There's kind of two different extremes there yeah. that it can go. Um, and then, of course, there are more that are unspecified, but I just wanted to hit on those just to kind of give those of us who aren't as familiar with mental health and mental illness um, something to kind of watch for and to note. But uh, also, trauma is non-discriminatory, no matter race, ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic status, whatever it may be. And it's a sad reality that it's more common in America, even more so for people with mental illness and substance abuse. So we're seeing again how it's all interrelated. And you know, these are from different uh, references, from different sources, and I'm, I just saw it over and over again, the interrelation between these. So. Uh, traumatic experience are associated with both behavioral health and chronic physical conditions. Like I said, I know I'm restating myself. Just want you to know it's coming from multiple sources. Um, and we need to be aware of it when children demonstrate the problem behaviors because I wanted to direct quote this. I thought it was great. Problem behaviors usually serve a function or purpose for the child. So although it might try, you know, patience, especially if you're not typically a peds person or you know, you're not used to dealing with these problematic behaviors, you know, we need to remind ourselves that it's typically because it serves a function or a purpose for the child. It's getting the child, maybe it's getting the child attention that it doesn't, you know, he or she doesn't usually get. Um, there's typically a reason behind it. So to deal with the problem behaviors, I found from the PACER Center, uh, which is Champions for Children with Disabilities, a couple different ways to approach these some good tactics for those of us who are not as familiar with this population. Planned ignoring, so that's kind of useful in stopping annoying behaviors. And I know those out there that are moms or have worked with children, you know, there are sometimes where you don't want to feed into those behaviors that they're doing. So that one's kind of a given. You just kind of plan to ignore it, to not encourage it. Um, There's preventative cueing. So that's like shaking of your head, making eye contact, snapping your fingers, that mom look that people master and just give their kid a look and they understand. Um, Proximity control. So you can move closer to the child in a gentle way, kind of um, a different type of cue. And then positive phrasing. So this was something that I definitely need to practice. I've heard of it, I was familiar with it, but I think I can definitely uh, benefit for some more practice from it. So these are things like, if you finish your reading by recess, we can go outside 
rather than if you don't finish, you don't go outside. So this is just kind of the dynamic of, of wording things. And I'm a bit familiar with how Pediatrics Plus does that. And they use that real positive language. So I'm sure you know all about that. Um, and then touch control. So touch that is not resisted. And of course, you have to know the person you're working with. You need to know them well before I would ever, you know, suggest that. But um, it's a nonverbal guided intervention. So you can direct towards a positive behavior. So, you know, that's kind of self-explanatory, just kind of gently guiding or kind of tactile cueing again, but very gentle. And again, making sure that you know that the person is comfortable with touch, because for some that would not, that would not be uh, beneficial. So humor. And this you have to be careful with also because you want to make sure it's at the situation and not at the individual. You don't ever want them to feel that it's directed at them. So if that can kind of take heat off the situation, humor can be beneficial, but you don't want the child to feel like, or the adult, whoever you're working with, to feel that it's directed at them. So what problem behaviors did you most commonly see and what did you find was the most effective way to deal with it? I think that when you think about problem behaviors or aberrant behaviors, challenging behaviors, the thing that was most common were, well, let me, the thing that was most commonly complained about. Mm -hmm. So I think that we really distinguish there. Um, challenging behaviors are often categorized not by the behavior themselves, but by how an adult experiences that behavior. Right. Uh, you know, because from a pure mental health standpoint, there can be behaviors that are equally alarming or red flags or problematic that nobody says anything about because they do not infringe upon the, yeah, their the, agenda. the, the, yes. the adult. And so the things that you most commonly hear are physical aggression, uh, verbal disrespect, and then those things that severely violate the um, the social norms. Yeah, type. yeah. So mm -hmm. that's a good way to put it. Social norms. Um, and the problem with that is that you are again the behavior itself is is not necessarily what the focus is, it, the focus there is how that adult is experiencing that behavior or how it is inconveniencing that adult. So right. those are the things that most commonly people complain about. What I would say is that anybody that approaches it from the standpoint of, okay, here is a behavior, this is how I approach that behavior, has missed the point. Mm -hmm. uh, because there is a, as you stated earlier, there is a reason for the behavior. And the reason for the behavior leads you to how to best support that child. Because if you can address the underlying problem, then that root cause, that deficit, I believe in, in, a, in the concept that a child does well if they can do well. Meaning that if a child is not doing well, it is not because they are not wanting to, it is because they are incapable and incapable in the sense that they do not yet have the skills in order to be successful. So if you, if you take that step back and say, okay, how do I, so this child is kicking, why? What is, what is the underlying 
rationale for why that child is doing that. And I think when you do that, you can you actually solve problems, mm-hmm. you actually address issues. Um, I, I often will do a, uh, when I'm teaching or doing a lecture or something about behaviors, I will write um, you know, some complicated calculus problem on the board and then I will ask someone to solve it. And they can't do it, and so then I offer them $100. And I say, hey, you just have to solve this problem, and then I'll give you $100. And they're not able to do it. And then I say, okay, well, you know, I'll, I'll come up with something dramatic, like saying, well, I've contacted your employer, and you're gonna be fired if you can't solve the problem. And they still can't solve the problem. And the reason why they can't solve the problem is they don't have the skill. It wasn't because they weren't motivated. And we make a mistake uh, uh, frequently with children that we focus on how to motivate a child to do something. It doesn't matter how motivated you are if you don't have the skills you to do it. How. Right. Yeah. Um, and so focusing, if you can figure out why something's happening, then you can address that as opposed to, to continually focusing on just a behavior. Mm-hmm. You may alter the behavior, you may change the behavior, but you're not really solving problem right um, so it really needs to be on on the, the root cause as opposed to the end result a behavior is a symptom mm-hmm. um, you know the other example that I often use is that if I if I have a fever right I can take an antifebrile medication of my choice and generally the fever will go away but I haven't actually addressed the illness you know taking Tylenol Advil ibuprofen that doesn't doesn't cause a cure for anything It symptom treats and your body heals itself. And that's why our general approach with behavior in children for typically developing children is so effective because there's not actually an underlying issue. The child's just developing, trying things out, exploring their space, exploring their mind, exploring their social setting. But a child that has underlying issues that you see aberrant behavior or severe behavior, Mm -hmm. they have something underlying. And so when we're attacking symptoms, it's not actually doing anything. It's as if you were taking a, you know, ibuprofen for COVID-19, right? It may symptom treat for a moment, but it's actually not solving the problem. You have to do something else in order to cure that illness. Those are both wonderful analogies. I think it's just kind of, it's, it's challenging if, you know, the environment, the child's parents, mm-hmm. you know, all of this yeah. comes into play. And in my mind, it's just a sad reality that, you know, we can, we can equip the child and help the child, but we can't can't solve what right. those parents are doing. And so, and I think it was, so and a, it's hard to be. Yeah. People are very defeated because they want something that will immediately mm-hmm. solve that problem. And the truth is that that doesn't exist. Right. You have to rapport build. You have to relationship build. You have to dig in. You have to look at the long term. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that is really hard for people. And we have to celebrate intermediate success, even yes. though it's still problematic. Yeah. You know, if you have a child that's saying the F word 20 times a day, that's a problem, right? In a school setting in particular. If you could reduce that to a child saying the F word 10 times a day, that would be a victory. <laughs> However, good luck of convincing a principal or a teacher that that's actually a victory that that's yes. a victory and yes. that's and that's where you really run into some mm-hmm. challenges so definitely and this actually i'm glad you brought that up because this resource that i talked about those different um the different mechanisms for for kind of approaching those behaviors the dealing with problem behaviors that was 
from a resource that kind of looks at it as a group view. So it's hard to find direct things as an OT, you know, evidence-driven, like here's exactly what to do because there is no surefire way, you know, it depends on the person. There's a lot of dynamic pieces that go into it. But these are, as a general rule, you know, I did want to state for those people that are listening that may not be OTs, maybe a parent, you know, whatever it may be. But just knowing that, you know, having a few things that you can do just to kind of immediate help, even though that's not treating the root cause, it's still important to note. Um, Absolutely. So I want to kind of dig into AOTA systematic review. So um, again, my topics are based on AOTA's critically appraised topics, and I use a lot of their resources because they're very, uh, they're direct, it's evidence-based, it's it's convenient. So this one that looks at mental health, the research question is what is the effectiveness of activity-based interventions for mental health promotion, prevention, and intervention with children? So the, the studies that were looked at, again, this is a systematic review, um, have interventions that are focused on peer and social interaction, compliance and adult directives, social rules and norms, participation in productive task-focused behavior. So uh, in the past, OT was strictly in a psych setting. So now we are now uh, in a public health model for the most part. So we've kind of tried to expand where we see these individuals. So now we're more focused on developing and maintaining mental health for all children rather than just seeing those severe ones. We're trying to move towards this model. And we're promoting occupations in play, leisure, work, social participation, ADLs, IADLs, sleep, and rest while in a variety of different environments. So pretty much doing just our whole scope of practice, but we're trying to hit all those different environments for the child. Um, instead of focused on, well, excuse me, we are more trying to be more focused on the prevention of intervention for mental illness. So we're trying to prevent it before it becomes a huge issue um, while we can. So the levels of service that we've now moved into according to AOTA in 2008, are number one universal so it's like it sounds it's for everyone it's for all and then there's targeted or selective which are for more at-risk groups and then there's intensive so this is for the children that are demonstrating the need for intervention and i'll kind of hit on um, more examples of that so promotion interventions are used most commonly in that universal service level so that focuses on competence enhancement. Like you said, we want to equip them with the skills instead of saying, you know, get motivated, get motivated. Here are the skills, how to. So we're building strengths and resources in the whole population. And that's according to Barry and Jenkins in 2007. So we're working on building those skill level before they, kind of before they need it, in case they need it. Um, and then prevention interventions, that relates to the targeted or selective uh, level of service. So this is for more at-risk groups. So traditionally, this used to focus on reducing incidents and seriousness of problem behaviors and mental health disorders, and that's by Barry and Jenkins, 2007 also. But uh, those early programs focused on decreasing risk factors, such as substance abuse and poverty. When you think about it, that is so difficult. How do you reduce the poverty level of a family, you know? I mean, that's, that's a difficult approach to take. How do you make sure that the child's parents don't abuse substances? So 
Now, our more current approach, it recognizes the importance of minimizing the mental health problems by enhancing protective factors. Like, hey, we might not can, you know, effectively decrease your risk factors all the time, but we want to enhance your protective factors within yourself. So that includes things like social and emotional competencies and like making sure they have clear standards for behavior. So, hey, you know, this is what's expected of you. Like, let's, let's make sure you, you have a full understanding. There are so many things as children, you know, they're just expected to do without ever saying, hey, I expect you to sit still, sit your bottom in the chair. This was one example one of my professors gave once. They, the child was repeatedly getting into trouble for, um, for standing in their chair, squatting in their chair. Their feet were in the chair. And they'll sit, sit, sit over and over. Well, the child did not, it didn't click with the child until somebody said, put your bottom in the chair. So that's something that's so simple and so small, but it had never been communicated to the child like that. So we want to make sure that, you know, we have clear standards for behavior. And that's by Miles et al. 2010. So lastly, that intensive level um, of service that we talked about, there are intensive individualized interventions is the third one. So that diminishes the, or it's created to diminish the effects of identified mental health problems and reach optimal function. So that's the children that are already presenting with severe, you know, mental illness and have those symptoms. And of course, the treatment is going to depend on the individual being seen, the mental health problems, the formal diagnosis. And so that's why this population is, is so different and it's so, um, even finding evidence was so much more challenging than it was on my last topic because this population is so unique. You can't categorize them together and say, here's a list of interventions that are going to work and here's a list of assessments that's going to work. So that's why we're talking about different ways to approach it. So back to the intensive individualized interventions. When I think of mental health services, that's what I think of. And I think most people would probably agree who aren't as familiar, who have not, you know, served in that uh, population. So how do you think OT can become more involved in this universal and targeted selective levels and while being immersed, if possible? Yeah, I think the, the issue of, of reimbursement is an interesting one because, again, the workaround is including it in everything that you do. Mm-hmm. So again, uh, approaching from that holistic perspective, I mean, we can absolutely work on areas of interest. We can absolutely utilize, uh, you know, the, I mean, that's our whole thing, right? Occupation right. as a means and an end. Well, that's the whole, that's, that is true mental health work. Mm-hmm. Um, no, we're not gonna be reimbursed, nor should we sit people down on a couch and psychoanalyze. That's, right. um, you know, and I think most mental health is moving away from that type of antiquated approach. Mm-hmm. The way that I think that we get involved is number one, we educate ourselves in compassionate, appropriate, up-to-date mental health care meaning that we are aware of how offensive things like uh, I'm a little OCD, right? Like Mm -hmm. that's, that's not an appropriate thing to ever say. Um, And and because it, it lacks understanding of what that diagnosis really is and and how it impacts individuals that, that experience that. Um, And I think that, when, when we are better educated as practitioners in the realm of mental health, 
we then become better stewards of that those approaches when we are executing our normal um, function. So to me, the biggest part is to be aware of what a client you have might be experiencing. Be aware of what appropriate approaches are mm-hmm. and then utilize them within the appropriate scope of practice that you have in whatever setting you find yourself. And I think the other thing that we can be big advocates for is destigmatizing uh, seeking additional help. Yeah. So if you may be the first contact, you may recognize signs and symptoms the first person. And so no appropriate and, and well regarded mental health care in your community. So that all mental health care is not created equal. Right. And so you may have a group that is not doing good things with children or adults. Mm-hmm. Uh, do your research and know, make uh, contacts, professional contacts within the community, uh, within your own setting, whether maybe you have a branch of that. If you're in a school district, you may have those within the school. Know who you can go to and who you can refer to uh, so that that person can get additional professional care if it's if it's needed. Before it escalates to that intensive individualized Absolutely. intervention. Yeah. And I think that in general, uh, particularly with children, unfortunately, um, you know, residential care, which mm-hmm. is what we consider kind of usually is the most intensive, right. is very rarely successful. Uh, what you see is cyclical, uh, the same kids going through the same facilities over and over in crisis. And that is re-traumatizing for them. And it uh, is something that's uh, really heartbreaking to see. Uh, and I don't, that is in no way disparaging to the work that those, those individuals do in those, those centers. Uh, some of them are tremendous advocates for mental health care and do great work with children. Uh, the problem is that, that once a child finds themselves in that cycle, very rarely are they able to exit that cycle right. in a successful way. And I think that there are some approaches out there in the country and the world that are trying to break those cycles, including the parents more, mm-hmm. um, having more compassionate and appropriate and non-restraint type approaches within those facilities. Uh, but it's a real challenge. It's a, it's very it's a very difficult setting. It's an area I feel like that we as a whole, not just OT, still have a lot to learn about. Absolutely. I mean, everything constantly, you know, we're constantly trying to be better in every area. But I feel like, you know, and this is very subjective, but I feel like that area specifically is very lacking. We really need to, you know, step up. I think back. sometimes it still has that kind of asylum mentality, that mm-hmm. forgotten people, where individuals go somewhere and there are. Uh, jokes and and pop culture references to that type of uh, severity of mental illness that prevents those individuals from being successful and oftentimes handcuffs the that world in general to uh, be challenged in Mm -hmm. in order to, to make progress and it's sad in general I've heard people debate whether or not mental illness is real sure and it's just such a sad reality because it's you know, it's a chemical imbalance, you know, it is physiological also, like it's, it's a real thing. And so just kind of sad to see. And like I said, we have a long ways to go with it, I think. So, um, exploring evidence for all three levels of service. 
So I want to talk about uh, each area that I listed, the universal, the universal, the targeted or selective, and the intensive. So I want to look at evidence on each of those levels. Um, the inclusion criteria for the systematic review that I mentioned before, the ages are 3 to 21 years. They're all peer-reviewed, and their outcomes are based on social or peer interactions, compliance with adult directives, or social rules and norms. So those were important things to note that I felt like before we, dive, we dove into the research, we needed to uh, keep in mind. So the universal programs, most of these that I found in the evidence are mostly school-based. So that's another way that, you know, another reason I say that this podcast is applicable for people in other settings too, because I don't imagine most school therapists would look at a mental health podcast and say, okay, yeah, I definitely need to dive into this, but this is actually very relevant for them. So I found um, multiple uh, strong level one meta-analyses and this one in particular, it talked about the whole school and uh, social emotional learning programs, how they improve social and emotional skills. So it was found to be beneficial. And that's according to Durlach, Weisberg, Dimnick, Taylor, and Schellinger in 2011. So the next one I saw was uh, also a level one meta-analysis uh, that had strong evidence that the whole school approach implemented continuously for more than a year and focused on promotion of mental health. So promoting it instead of prevention can be successful. So when I think of it that way, I think of more, um, more positive education, more, you know, your mental health is important because of this, and this is, these are ways that you can do it instead of preventing it once it happens. Um, and that's by Wells, Barlow, and Stuart Brown in 2003. And thirdly, um, another level one meta-analysis that had strong evidence that children in after school that incorporate social skills or other personal skill goals can increase social behaviors and reduce problem behaviors. So that's by Durlach, Weisberg, and Packin in 2010. So all of these are school-based, and so is the next one. Uh, also a level one meta-analysis with strong evidence to support that, that school-based stress management and coping skill programs for children, grades three through eight, can decrease stress and increase coping skills. And that was by Craig et al. in 2006. Um, lastly, for the universal, there was a level one randomized control trial that talked about how uh, mental health literacy programs for adolescents can increase knowledge and their attitudes about mental illness. So that's a way that, how we talked about earlier, there's such a stigma associated with it. So open communication. We're gonna increase their knowledge and their attitudes about this um, when we do so. So something that I saw, you know, all of these are school programs, and I don't know if, if a lot has changed in the curriculum, but thinking back to my school days, my high school, you know, elementary, I don't, I don't remember mental health being pushed, been, being promoted. I, I really don't, and if it, if it was, it wasn't to a point where it was, you know, out there enough for me to have memory of today. So not discrediting my high school, but I just want to say, you know, it, it can't, all of this supports it. And so pushing it more, promoting it in a positive way is, is a great thing. It has a lot of benefits. Um, so I found two different websites, teenmentalhealth.org. 
has customizable programs to fit each school's need. And I don't know anything about Christ or any of that, but I thought that that was a great resource to have because we as OTs, you saw how many of those universal, you know, we talked about how to move OT into those other areas other than the intensive individualized services. So one way to start moving us towards a universal model and to prevent rather than treat after it's a problem is to meet them in schools and start implementing these programs. And, you know, I don't know that that's OT's job solely, but, it, you know, we can be an advocate in that area when we know that this is, that this is a problem and we can also, you know, be uh, part of that team that pushes that. So teenmentalhealth.org, again, uh, that's the one that has the customizable programs for adolescents. And then for, I also wanted to know more because, you know, if it has such benefits, why not start when the children are younger? So I found an elementary program um, and that is called Brains Beyond Borders, Brains Beyond Borders. And that's also a curriculum to promote mental health. So my takeaways from the mental health, um, excuse me, from the universal service level was to address these issues openly. So address social and emotional learning, uh, mental health promotion, social and personal skills, problem solving. This can all have such huge benefits in terms of mental health. Um, it's equipping them with these skills. A lot of things are just... Like I mentioned earlier, it's kind of a given. People expect you to know and to develop it subconsciously kind of, but why not bring that to the surface and talk openly about it? So, like I said, my school, I don't remember it talking um, very openly or pushing that for me, and it may depend on the school, it may depend on the area, I don't know, but what do you think is the best way to incorporate these techniques in the school? Do you think that that OT should lead it? Do you think it should be led by the school counselor? Do you think teachers should have the largest input? What do you suggest? Yeah, I think that anytime there, it's got to be a team approach that mm -hmm. uh, any, you know, when a group of uh, professionals and adults have contact with a child, there, there needs to be more collaboration in signs and symptoms and signals that people are seeing and observing. And then a unified approach on how to support that, um, you know, group, I think is also, or that individual is really important. And that's maybe where we're lacking sometimes is cohesiveness and mm -hmm. approach. Um, I mean, you mentioned it earlier, there are individuals that um, don't believe in, in some of the diagnoses or mental health challenges that are out there. And so if you have a group of people, teachers and uh, admin or other professionals that work at the school that think that, well, this child is just being bad because they, they you know, are doing things intentionally, they come from bad parents, they, all of the silly and nonsensical excuses that, or rationales that people use to not love children uh, or love people that becomes a real problem. And so I think that anyone that is thinking about being an advocate for mental health is the right person to be an advocate for mental health. Uh, I think I like that. We, we don't always have to know all the right answers. I think having the right attitude and the right heart is much more important than having the knowledge. Now that doesn't excuse ignorance. Like you want to educate yourself and 
make sure that you're not doing things unintentionally that are um, triggering or traumatizing or anything like that. But again, I think that if 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 you're thinking about it, if you if it's on your mind, then you're you're the right person for the job. And um, again, you don't like a school counselor. Obviously, that's that's a clear that person right. is trained in that. Mm-hmm. But I think being an ally to that person and helping and communicating and forming a professional relationship with those people are that's very important to for to be successful. Um, in the school district, it's it can be very challenging because there is a there's limited time, there is limited resource, there is limited opportunity for collaboration, all funding, those barriers, all of funding, yeah. yeah. So I think that sometimes to to make an impact, you have to be willing to go beyond that. Um, always respecting appropriate boundaries, but um, yeah, it, it to, to me that the team though is, is critically important because if, if you're the only one that is trying to fight for something, in particularly in a school setting, you're, it's gonna be a challenge because Definitely, there's so many yeah. moving pieces. So that school counselor with, with the team behind you, you know, an OT being an advocate, because we definitely see the you know, great benefits that it can have. I agree. Team approach is always, always a good route to go. Um, something I wanted to bring up that I found very interesting. So, in the other topics that I've looked at before, parent education and parent involvement is so huge and plays, uh, it's just so beneficial in pretty much every area <laughs> that they're measuring for, uh, for success. So, I only found, which I'm not saying it's not beneficial here, but I found moderate amount of evidence that parent education improves the child compliance or prevents aggressive behaviors. And I looked at a couple of different sources and it was pretty much consistent. And so I just assumed that with this population, you know, it may kind of be, it's very variable probably on the child and situation because sometimes the parent can be a trigger, I'm sure. So that was the only thing I could come up with. So do you typically, you know, do you get to know the child first before you involve the parent? How do you typically do that? Yeah, I think that it depends on the setting. I mean, sometimes it's not appropriate to approach the child without obviously having a relationship with the parents, depending on the age of the child and the situation. Mm-hmm. I, I would say one thing that is a challenge that, that it's probably very difficult to remove this issue from when you're researching, the variable of... Uh, a parent's understanding and willingness to follow the advice that mm-hmm. you're providing. Um, and that's true across the board. I mean, right. and I, I'll, I'm going to use a controversial example, um, but why not? Uh, so we live in the South, um, and corporal punishment is a hot-button topic sometimes. Yeah. And I used to do a lot of parenting classes, and I'll tell you that unequivocally corporal punishment should never be done ever there is no justifiable situation that it is a disciplinary approach that is effective in any way it is 100 percent traumatizing no matter the situation no matter the rationale no matter the child it's been demonstrated in research study after research study to lead to or be associated with long-term problems in, in children. 
particularly the more severe end of corporal punishment, but even just consistent use of corporal punishment as discipline. But we live in a world where corporal punishment is used often. Um, I mean, I, I grew up in, in, a, in a culture when I was a child that it was not alarming for me to hear someone reference the use of a belt mm-hmm. or, you know, things like that. Where, but but I, again, the evidence from a mental health standpoint would say that that is horrifying, something that should never be used. But I'll say in all of the times that I did parent education groups, uh, you know, it got to be to the point that it wasn't sometimes even worth bringing up. Welcome to the South, right? Yeah, I mean, people just, and, and so that's that's where that, you know, parent education, yes. uh, parent, educating parents doesn't mean that parents learn anything. Right. Uh, or take anything from that. And, and again, I, the thing is, is that we have to take into account, if we want to be successful, we have to take into account those cultural particular you know peculiarities or particular approaches or beliefs values mm-hmm. um, having said that sometimes you just have to state things flatly and say hey that's not this is just what the evidence that this is, is this not is the that. appropriate way yeah. to do something um, but anyway so I think that generally yeah I mean you make a lot of progress when you work directly with a child the problem is that if there's no carryover mm-hmm. then you know, ultimately, what are you accomplishing? A lot of times you don't generate. You need that carryover to generalize Absolutely. the skills. So. Definitely. Um, I want to move on to the, the targeted. So we've, we've covered universal. Now we're going to go to the targeted interventions. So, the, again, this population is uh, adolescents. Well, this study in particular is adolescents rejected by peers at risk for behavioral problems, aggressive behaviors uh, that, had le- that possibly had learning disabilities or ADHD or had intellectual impairments, developmental delays, or were teenage mothers. So that's just what these studies looked at specifically. So there were three level ones and randomized controlled trials that had strong evidence to support that social skills training for disliked or rejected children and adolescents improved social interaction, peer acceptance, and social standing. I hate when it's put like that. Disliked or rejected children. I think though, the thing is, is that that that's a the, the what I immediately read into that though mm-hmm. is what we're, we're looking at is that is the skill deficit that this child has. Yes. Right. So social skills. Exactly. We need that. So and and what we what we see is that we assume we always think that we're teaching children these types of skills. We're not. They are learning them in the moment in in their social interactions right the first time you say to your best buddy man you're fat and that child reacts poorly to that you go i'm not going to say that anymore Mm -hmm. that's not an appropriate thing to communicate i didn't have to teach that child hey don't say that to other people i mean sometimes as a parent right you do but (laughs) those toddlers um, who aren't quite there yet right too brutally honest (laughs) but but the thing is is that there are children that don't make the connection that when I did that, that's what caused this social interaction to go poorly. Mm-hmm. And so then as they, if they are not intensely or differently taught or skill developed with a, a surrounding, whatever that is, they don't develop it. 
and then they get to the older and then they are they're rejected and disliked because they're uncomfortable to be around they are odd they are you know slightly off-putting um but it's because of a deficit not because of an inherent flaw within the their their person it's just that they don't have that skill behavior that they have Mm -hmm. not yet learned absolutely um i saw i sat through a little bit of a different population it was still focused very much on mental health. It was at the VA. We had a brief mm-hmm. experience there, me and a couple classmates, and I got to sit on, on one of their social skills training. And what I loved about it was instead of just talking at them with these adults, they did role play, which mm-hmm. was so, you know, can be uncomfortable for people who don't like to be put on the spot, but that's how you generalize Absolutely. it, you know? And they would give you uh, one thing you did good and one thing that you could improve on. Their, their peers that were, you know, also in the group. And, of course, there were rules of how to put things, you know, well, I think you could do this better, but you said it, you know, in a way that was respectful and everything. And it was awesome to see that they were learning it because they did. They gave them, you know, well, maybe try this next time. Then they would do it again. And I was like, this is wonderful. They're actually, you know, they're uncomfortable at first the first time they do it. And it's kind of odd to enforce for the first time. Hey, you know, it's fine. You just have to be energetic and everything about it. And it was great to see that. So uh, that was me actually seeing it play out. And I thought that that was the best way to do it, was to kind of generalize it that way. So moving on, I found uh, six studies that were, most of them were level one, and they all had strong evidence to support that. Again, these are all pretty interrelated. So before, the difference was, this population in in the study before that I just mentioned was that the training was for uh, disliked or rejected children and adolescents. But this next one, these were for more at-risk and aggressive and antisocial children. So pretty similar population, but just more aggressive is what they wanted to emphasize. And that uh, the social skills programming improved their attention, their peer interaction, their pro-social behaviors. Um, It reduced their aggression and their antisocial behaviors. So again, very interrelated, more, you know, learned behavior that we're finding to be beneficial. And so three, three studies, I found that, um, you know, the population again, similar, but this population was with learning disabilities and ADHD. And again, found, you know, was strongly supported to be successful and the same benefits for children with intellectual impairments and developmental delay. So we covered a wide range of different diagnoses, different symptoms, um, characteristics, and were pretty much all found, you know, were supported by evidence to be beneficial. So I wanted to ask you, when you do social skills programming, uh, what do you use? Did you come up with an, you know, with a specific program depending on the child or do you have something that you kind of go to you gravitate towards that you found to be beneficial i think as a with children anytime you're in a setting where there are like a class setting or multiple children present you have immediately at your disposal a social skill training you know playground right like everything that that they do absolutely so um Myself and a, a, a colleague of mine, uh, Laura White, she, she and I sat down and were kind of thinking through some challenges that we have and uh, with, with some behaviors and difficult kids and, and how to approach them and how to have other people approach them. And we developed a, a program based off a, a particular 
theory called IPAC, um, Improving Pediatric Adaptive Capacity, and that has a lot of social skill programming kind of built into it, uh, just from a, you know, you're always approaching that child in that natural environment, in the school setting where they are interacting with peers on a constant basis. I will say that when I individually, you know, and I don't, I, I treat very sparingly now. Um, I am in, in a more of an administrative role, but when I do treat, particularly with adolescents, I think that what is most critical is to not be scared of the setting being out there and natural and in the community. Uh, you know, create, find an interest and place that child in an interest area um, and then increasingly challenge them with uh, what that setting looks like. So I, I once uh, treated a wonderful kid that uh, who's now uh, an adult, but he really loved to cook and was really excellent at it. And so most of our treatment involved cooking. Now that could mean that, you know, once we, we created a, a dinner where we invited 20 people and he cooked for 20 people, where they ordered, we set it up like a restaurant, and within that we had to go, we had a budget, we had to go shop at the grocery store, and you know, this was a very stressful thing for this very young man, man. Yeah. because he had to make these decisions, and he had to, but it was, it was wonderfully informative for him uh, because he wanted to, you know, he, he liked really nice food, and we, <laughs> we had a meltdown in the middle of a grocery store because he wanted to buy a $30 hunk of cheese and I said, well, you know, I kind of showed him how much yeah. of the budget that was going to take up. And he just, you know, couldn't get his mind wrapped around how he could. He wasn't going to be able to cook without this cheese. And I told him, I said, well, it's your decision, but, you know, we've got to stick within this budget. And we won't be able to do this or that if we, if we get this. And in those natural environments, in those real world settings, that's where that experience becomes... Uh, instructive and didactic for the child or for the person um, and I think that you know we another that same child uh, or really adolescent he was an, an older teenager we he needed a job and so the best way we did a lot of mock interviews and things like that but the best way to do it was hey let's go interview for some jobs yeah, absolutely. and so within that it's uncomfortable it is, you know, I, uh, I helped uh, teach this guy to drive, too, because that was part of it. And it had been, been a long time <laughs> since I'd ever been in, I've been in a vehicle where I was uncomfortable. <laughs> but it was uncomfortable. But again, without putting yourselves in those, you know, allowing that, um, that, that. Kind of losing control of the situation. Yeah. You're not in a super controlled right. environment. You're well, in a real I, environment. And I think that that's a great way to put it, is that control is a is a funny thing because I always tell people, especially in a classroom, like a preschool classroom, that's really what my big focus is, is preschool classrooms. The easiest way to lose control is to desperately try to hold on to control. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if that's your all your focus is, I can't lose control of the situation, you will never have control of the situation. And so to allow a little bit of freedom and to allow the possibility of failure, um, 
is the only way to find success. You know, because you want this child, this person, this adolescent, this adult that you're working with, if, if it doesn't get real, right, and there's not that possibility of failure to where you can experience real learning, uh, you know, then, then they'll never be able to be successful in that setting. And that's what, I mean, again, that's the essence of occupational therapy, yes. right, is to utilize that real world as the therapy. Um, and I think that, you know, as occupational therapists, if we find ourselves not doing that, we need to reevaluate the way that we're treating. Definitely. Um, because that's, that's what makes a real impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, not this, you know, I know we, we, the jokes in occupational therapy are always about stacking cones and, you know, that kind of <laughs> nonsense. Oh, yeah, I've heard of Yeah, but I think that it can be well developed from there but still problematic if yes. we're not if we're not putting our if we're not supporting our clients in real world experiences and i think honestly it's very easy in pediatrics because in pediatrics the real world experience for a child is play yes and social interaction you can do that anywhere exactly so it's i think honestly as you as the population ages it becomes more challenging sometimes mm-hmm because it's much more clinical in its nature of what we do. Um, So for kids, I mean, there's no excuse not to be, I mean, if you're sitting at a table in an office stacking blocks, then you've got to to take a step back. Yes, most definitely. Um, I wanted to talk about too, and a lot of this relates back to my previous podcast, the things that I'm finding that's just interesting to me because I have dove into both, but... Anyway, yoga in the last one was found to be, you know, in children with autism, extremely beneficial. And there was very limited evidence. I don't, you know, yoga was included in this systematic review also. And this one was a level two non-randomized controlled trial that, again, was very, had very limited evidence that a program of yoga, massage, and relaxation for children with behavioral difficulties, um, was just not, you know, that it increased self-confidence and communication. So limited ev- evidence, yoga is kind of an up-and-coming thing, so I wanted to bring this up just to kind of state that, you know, proceed with caution, the evidence is a little bit limited. But that's by Powell, Gilchrist, and Stapley in 2008. Um, I found three studies that provided strong evidence. This is more play-based, so I wanted to kind of dive into this still, again, for... Um, not the universal, but the, uh, the targeted interventions. So the play-based, that groups for abused, neglected children improved play skills, self-esteem, and positive feelings, and decreased solitary play and behavioral problems. So again, the real-world experience, they're doing their occupation, they're with other children, it's not a super controlled environment, it's them and their natural habitat, and again, we're seeing strong evidence that it's beneficial. Go OT. Um, that participation in recreation, leisure, and physical education programs improve social interaction as well. So, I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but pretty much the same thing. So, have them in their natural environment, do recreation, leisure, their, their chosen occupations. So, now we're going to move on to the intensive intervention. So, this is the one-on-one for the children who already demonstrate um, symptoms of mental illness or have a diagnosis. So, For children and adolescents who require intensive mental health intervention um, and have this diagnosis, excuse me. So I didn't include as many interventions because 
this population, according to the systematic review, also included autism spectrum disorder. And because that was our last topic, um, I didn't want to repeat this necessarily. And also, I don't feel like those are usually um, categorized together. That was very interesting to me. So it wasn't as much available evidence in this area because it does depend on the individual, their diagnosis, their symptoms. So this was much more limited compared to the universal and the targeted uh, levels of service. So I did find that there was strong evidence that social skills intervention, once again, can improve social behaviors for children with mental illness diagnoses or serious behavior disorders. So these are our um, commonly thought of mental illness diagnoses like schizophrenia, depression, anxiety, conduct disorders, and severe behavioral or emotional disorders. So in a level one systematic review, um, I did find that video modeling improved peer interaction and on-task behavior and reduced inappropriate behavior. So that video modeling is the visual teaching method. Someone models a targeted behavior or skill and then the child you know, imitates the new skill uh, to try to learn it and generalize it. And of course this requires practice, that's not a one-time thing. And that's by Baker, Lang, and O'Reilly in 2009. So like I said, the intensive interventions were not as detailed in, uh, in specifics because it's so dependent on the child and their needs. So I wanted to ask you, do you do, do you typically do the video modeling because or do you prefer that interaction with the child, like modeling yourself? Because it was just interesting to me, I guess the child might not generalize, you know, your reaction the same as it would seeing a child on video. And yeah. I just thought that was interesting. I have not done uh, much of anything in terms of video modeling with children. Mm -hmm. I will say though that uh, we use a lot of peer modeling be, and for the same reason. And that's kind of what I was trying yeah. to say. That's more real world than seeing it on TV and, and I, seeing but it on screen. I will say, though, that I think we, we always, you know, I have some strong feelings about screen time in general uh, that are maybe in this world slightly counterculture. But the reality is, is that it is an inevitability that we cannot escape, mm -hmm. right? Screens Definitely. are everywhere and... They are how a child interacts with their world in many circumstances. So I, I do think it's important that we, whenever possible, limit screen time, but I don't think that we should ever limit the available resources or approaches that we could use um, if, if it is effective. Definitely. Well, that kind of concludes our um, discussion over the meta-analysis by AOTA. And so to close um, with Mr. Hanson, I just wanted to ask, what do you think? We did talk a lot about the stigma that's associated with mental health. I even told you that, you know, I've heard people debating on whether or not it's even, it's even real. And so what do you think we as OTs, no matter what our setting is, no matter what population we work with, what do you think we can do to help try to eliminate and reduce this stigma that is associated with mental illness? I think that a couple things I think in everybody's life they they can they can be an advocate for um, those that suffer from mental health issues and and I think that as, so outside of being OT just being a human being I think it's important that we 
are conscientious of what we're saying and what we're doing and how we're approaching people. Uh, as OTs, I think that one of the things that I would encourage everyone to think about is how close to the line we are uh, in any in any setting. So, in in my world, um, who's to say uh, I, I, that I'm not a couple of decisions away from suffering from some of the same challenges and traumas and difficulties that someone that, that may find themselves even institutionalized uh, were and what I would propose to, to anyone is that we're all close we're all uh, you know many of us enjoy a robust and supportive network uh, a safety net if you will that prevents that from happening uh, but I can reflect on my own life and if you take that safety net away I am uh, hugely in debt I am uh, you know it's unstable, unstable All which around. which leads to you know you chase bad decisions sometimes mm -hmm. when you're in those settings without that support network or that safety net and so I just I think we always want to humanize anyone that we're working with uh, we want to make sure that we are looking at that person as a whole um, and remembering when we do come across the unsavory parts of someone's personality or life or what we perceive to be unsavory parts that we also remember what our own life looks like mm -hmm. and those uh, those challenges that that we experience i, I you know, working in foster care and in the uh, DHS and in, in that, you know, within the, the realm of, of child protective services and things like that, I, I always, I, there is no way justify the behavior of, of some parents that lead to their child being um, removed from care. But what I would also say is how many of us would sign up for, uh, a full dive into our parenting or our our personal life. Mm -hmm. um, all of us have things that we wish we were better at or wish we could do uh, um, in a way that is is not doesn't poorly reflect on us. And right. and so it, that's a, a very roundabout way of just saying that I the way that we can destigmatize mental health is to openly acknowledge that it exists. Mm -hmm compassionately care for those that are experiencing difficulty and making sure that we're not setting it up as an us and them scenario but rather um, perhaps more of a um, a now and, and possibly in the future scenario like and what I mean by that is that this person is now experiencing this and I am caring for them and I hope in the future, if I were struggling with something similar, that someone would also compassionately be caring for, for what I'm going through. So, in a roundabout way, treat others the way we want to be treated. <laughs> I like that a lot. Well, thank you so much for sharing your insight and being here today and everything that, that you shared with us, all the information based on your expertise. I, I appreciate, appreciate the invitation. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.
That concludes our episode on mental health. Of course, I appreciate our interviewee, Mr. Noah Hansen, being here today to lend his expertise, but I also wanted to give a quick thank you to Ms. Pam Hanloser at the UAMS Diagnostic Center as she equipped me with some case studies that were relevant to this topic that really helped um, me become immersed in the information that I was looking at. So thank you to her for participating and um, enriching my learning experience more. And I also want to remind everyone to check out our Facebook page at Things You Ought to Know. The spelling is the same as what's in the podcast description. And if you're an OT or an OTA that listened today and would like a contact hour opportunity, please don't forget to click the link in the description or go to the Facebook page to find it to take a four-question questionnaire to earn a contact hour certificate that will be emailed to you. If you have questions, feel free to message me on the Facebook page. And I hope that this was helpful to you all. And stay tuned to find out what I plan to do with the podcast now that my capstone experience is coming to an end. So thank you all for your support and stay tuned for more information.